Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. You know, it's not about a specific place or it's not about women's issues specifically or it's about not about a specific issue, but they're, you know, it's just about a portrait of everyday life, you know, and how, yes, people are different, but we all have the same fundamental feelings and, you know, we all have the same human experience. And I think this book kind of does make you feel that way. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 81, also known as the number of squares on a shogi board. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with translator Perwin Richards about The Sea Cloak and Other Stories, written by Nehruz Karmut. Perwin Richards is a literary translator of Arabic language stories. She attended translating classes at City Summer School in London in 2016 and was one of the two winners of the school's annual translation competition, sponsored by Kama Press. She was awarded an English Pen Translates grant to translate the sea cloak. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I'm your host, John Monaster. I'm very excited to be talking today with my uh, transatlantic guest uh, on the other side of the ocean via uh, the beautiful Zoom that we all love. Uh, and I'm going to be talking with her today about the book, The Sea Cloak, uh, written originally by Nehru's uh, Karmut and translated by my guest, Perween Richards. Perween, say hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being on. I'm really excited. Um, this was quite a book, as we were just talking about. So there's mm-hmm. there's uh, much to kind of unwrap and think about within within this book. So uh, why don't we just kick things off? Maybe just just tell me, you know, uh, the the kind of quick a kind of quick overview mm-hmm. of uh, what the book is all about. So the book is a collection of short stories about the life of. Um, Palestinians and people in Gaza, which is um, sort of, I wouldn't say autobiographical, but the Nairuz Armut grew up in a, in a Syrian refugee camp and eventually moved back to her um, country, Palestine. And um, she, you know, writes about life in Gaza for ordinary people and writes a little bit about history, about, um, you know, growing up in Gaza under these um, you know, unusual conditions. And it's really about um, a group of people who share a very small part of land but live completely different lives. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that That's such a good way of putting it because that, that is one of the things that almost every story that, mm-hmm. that talks about those issues really brings forward is, is how 
how different everyone's experiences are True. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's start a little bit about the whole process because mm-hmm. I'm really curious to know, I, I haven't actually spoken with a, a translator before on the, on the podcast. So I'm really curious to know about how that works. Um, so just maybe, you know, maybe your background as a translator and how you got involved with this project would be, would be great to know. Okay. So I attended, um, a literary translation course at City University in London. And um, it's, um, I had always been interested in translation and I worked in publishing for a few years. So I think for me, it was the natural step. And because I'm a fluent Arabic speaker, that's the language I wanted to translate into, uh, translate from Arabic to English. And so Coma Press, who published uh, The Sea Cloak and Other Stories, sponsored the prize. And I was one of two winners and the prize was uh, to, it's a publishing deal for um, for one of their stories. And I chose one of the stories from the book, uh, Our Milk. And that's the, the first story, the, the story I entered the competition with and they liked it. And when I had them published um, and asked me to publish the others, uh, translate the other stories. So they had a competition to see who would be the translator for the book? Yes, for this book and a couple of, and another book. Um, but the other book was an anthology of different uh, authors. And I guess with Nairuza's book, they had about 14 stories that hadn't been translated. And um, mm-hmm. I was lucky that I chose one where <laughs> she had written quite a few uh, few stories. So they had enough material for a book. Huh. And um, yes. Okay, well, there you go. You won, you won the, the competition. <laughs> I guess it's always, I I guess it's like a job interview. It's always a competition in some way. So, huh. Yes, because I think they, you know, it's a really good way to judge something because if you, if you can't read the original language, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to know the original language of the, of the story, as long as it makes sense in English. Right. And Mm, uh, the work of a literary translator, it's, it is like you're pitching a book yourself because you mm-hmm. find the writer, you find the story, and you think it could it could translate well, and you want to, um, and you want to have it published. So you approach the author, and you approach a publisher, and you know translate a sample, send a proposal, and hopefully they like it. <laughs> yeah. So this was yeah. a bit of a shortcut, <laughs> but yeah, great. Good. I'm glad it worked out. Um, yeah, Thank and you. and I noticed that you had. Um, You've done some translation previously. Um, I saw a banthology. You know, h- yes. how did that, how did this translation compare? Well, I think um, with banthology, the story I translated Zahir Marine's story, A Beginner's Guide to Smuggling, about, um, about people trying to, you know, people escaping Syria and going to Europe and basically mm-hmm. being smuggled on these boats. And he, and obviously it's quite a tragic story, but he wrote about it in a very funny way. And it was, you know, quite, um, he wrote about it with humor and, you know, it could have been really dark, but he wrote about, you know, the kind of guide to being smuggled into Greece, you know? And uh, yeah, so it was a funny story and it was short, but he'd already written it and it was kind of very straightforward, short story, you know, it had a beginning had an end and, um, it was uh, also part of an anthology. So, um, you know, I worked on it and it was one of the stories um, about, and it was, I think, after Trump's ban of, on Muslim countries. Mm. 
And that was a response, the book was a response to Trump's ban on um, immigration from Muslim countries. And, uh, yeah. but I think the big difference is his story had already been written. And with Nairuz's book, she was still in the process of writing. So I would, you know, she would write a story, I would translate it, and sometimes she'd rewrite it or we'd make another change because we had the mm. flexibility because the, the, the stories weren't published in Arabic. Um, uh, so, you know, so no that's one would know. tricky. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah. I had a lot more work to do, but it was, mm. you know, really exciting to be involved in her writing process and to kind of see yeah. the changes that she made. And, you know, it's kind of like just not writing with her but just seeing how her mind works you know it was really interesting really interesting yeah that, that is really interesting i mean do you have a particular example when like she made a particular change that you were surprised by or like something happened that you wouldn't have thought but it somehow made sense to her and then you kind of reconciled mm. um i think with the story 14th of june i think mm -hmm. it was called I mean, the title was different. Um, that's obviously a small change, but so much of that story was written, I think, from her own perspective, her own point of view, that it was hard for um, anyone to understand what was going on. And I think it was the first story I translated after Our Milk. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be <laughs> really tough because I have, yeah. you know, I, I don't understand who the narrator is. The narrator kept changing. Um, didn't know where everyone was and when you're translating you have to be very specific and you have to understand every single word because a word you know could change the meaning of the, the sentence especially in Arabic mm -hmm. and um, I was kind of taken aback by how much work she actually put into it to try and make it more like readable to other people because obviously I, I mean I assumed this kind of this had happened to her happened to someone she knew and it was really traumatic so writing about it you know you you have to make the reader understand what's going on. And I think if it happened to you, it's kind of hard to explain that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting from, from talking to all of the different writers that I've spoken with on the podcast, I definitely get a sense that there's a lot more editing than you would imagine that goes on. I mean, over That's and right. over and over <laughs> again. And, so I it, think yeah, it's, it's worse it's, than the writing, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, it almost seems like almost seems like it. And because what you yeah. do is you sort of you edit it until it seems perfect, and then when people read it, they're like, "Oh, it's just these magnificent words just flowed right yeah. out." And you sort of it, it just you you miss that there were you know fifty intermediate steps to get there. So yeah, I can only uh, yeah. imagine that this was magnified by the the way you had to work with her yeah and as a translator and especially from Arabic what you get from the publisher is usually a completely unedited manuscript because the literary editor in Arabic publishing it's not they don't really exist you, you know mm -hmm. writers are very difficult because they don't want anybody to touch their work and so we don't have editors like you know people do in English so mm -hmm. as a translator your job is to you know, correct the manuscript and guess like, you know, what you're trying to say and, um, you know, edit it a little bit so you can understand what's going on, proofread it, and then kind of send it to publisher who makes more edits. Wow. I mean, I was, I was going to ask you what the hardest part was, but it sounds like based on what you said, the answer is everything. Well, I think for Nairuz, 
specifically, she's extremely talented, and you know, she's mm-hmm. one of the best writers in Arabic I've you know ever read because, and she's so young. And I'm, I'm really jealous, but uh, you know, she does write very well, and she writes she writes very complicated sentences, and she writes the kind of um, without punctuation, without. Mm. Um, you know, she writes, in, it's all first person, present tense, and it's all stream of consciousness type writing. So that's really hard to translate. Yeah. And um, I think initially I was a little worried about asking her too many questions. But obviously I realized I, I can't just guess what she's saying and I have to speak yeah. to her, you know, and she said, don't be shy. Just, you know, we need to work on this together because you can't understand everything I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really that's great that she was willing to work with you like that. No, she yeah, was I mean, so, extremely generous, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so do you get a sense that, for the most part, when you say that these stories were told first person, you know, uh, that a lot of it was just based on her experiences and she sort of fictionalized it to some extent? Um, some of it, I think, yeah. I mean, I think so. Yeah. Uh, obviously not everything, because a lot of it has happened in the past and a lot of it, you know, covers things that she probably wouldn't have experienced, you know, like uh, yeah. terrorism or, you know, being shot and <laughs> other right. things. Uh, like, I don't think she experienced them, but I, you know, I think you can always tell when there's a little bit of the writer in the story. And, yeah. um, you know, I always think I'm really good at guessing who's their favorite character. <laughs> but with Nairoz, it was really tricky because, you know, I think she feels very strongly about all of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, especially because in, in some of them, there are sort of, I mean, so like Our Milk, for example, the the characters are very, well, I mean, they're ephemeral, obviously, because of... of mm our milk is about you know terrorist attacks but yeah you kind of see you see these people kind of just spending in in the hotel at the king david hotel and you know they're just chatting in between you know about a woman is a little irritated about waiting for you know her uh, her milk and and then sparrows you you get to see some of the the terrorists like being dropped off but you just also hear Mm. a casual conversation like so it's interesting because i think you know, with with short stories and with some of these stories that are that are, you know, there's there, you're not there's not a lot of time to really connect with a character. You know, like as a That's reader, right. at least you're sort of just yeah. like, okay, something's happening. There are some people here. Oh no, like an explosion, and okay, I need to process what just happened. And you know what I mean. So and so, it's interesting to think about like, oh, for that story, you know, some of the characters were drawn from from the historical. Um, the history. Yes, so, so, I mean, I think the spar, the, the bombings, are, yeah, I think the our milk and sparrow, these were real terrorist attacks. I mean, they were they were real explosions. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about, you know, how how she might have like favorite mm. favorite characters there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But I also think I think with some of them, I felt like there was maybe a link between the stories, and maybe not. Hmm. But I think some of the characters are recurring in a way that. You know, I can see how the trajectory of this young man, he would eventually become, you know, a terrorist maybe, or this person mm. would be so hateful because something terrible happened to them or or not, you know? And it's, yeah, it, I think it takes a r- real uh, understanding, obviously, of 
who the people are to write about them in such a different way. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting point about kind of a, a progression, maybe, because there are you know if you mm. look at the stories, you know there are, for example, there like a, a the character of a little girl, for example, you see kind of replicated in many stories. Um, yeah, uh, from Sea Cloak to the Mirror to um, the Fourteen June, and you know there, there's a lot of stories about little girls and their yeah. experiences there. And, and, you know, then you kind of see at the end, like the Samarillan Moon one, there's, it's these two, you know, adults now trying to deal with themselves. So it is interesting to think like, oh, did, you know, is, is, is that adult woman now drawing from, mm. you know, the experiences that any of these other girls had over the course of the novel? Yeah, I think we can expect that. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if, you know, maybe not specifically to her book. Whenever I read a book of short stories by the same author, I always think, oh, like, you know, this is the same character or this is what happens to her. And it's mm. it's really hard to not do that. But maybe. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> your, your, your brain just packs it all in yeah. at the same time as you're reading. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's jump in and talk about some of these and maybe see if we can tease out some of, the, some of those uh, connections. So like, for example, in Black Grapes, we that we have a kind of a, this is a story with men, and we have a, kind of a young man who is laborer and an older man who is management, and they're both kind of sneakily being watched by a old man just kind of hanging out. Uh, and there's there's a conflict, you know, the, the kind of this is... About money and how much uh, he's the, the, Yeah, going this, back to the beginning yeah. of time, probably a typical, very yes. typical conflict <laughs> where labor says, yeah. you owe me money, and management says, I, I don't, too bad. And, yeah. um, but in this case, so uh, to me, this is what really struck me, is that this is a very, you know, um, it's the type of conversation that happens all the time, of course, yeah. all over the world. But It's universal. <laughs> it's universal, exactly. But in this case, again, what, what I think is brought with the book is the focus on why it's different here in this place in Gaza is because somebody got angry with someone else and said, like, stop being a terrorist or something, shouted that out. And this old guy who happened to be watching kind of apparently was a watchdog for the security forces, called him in because he said, oh, someone said called someone a terrorist. And then, you know, they stormed in and it just took over. And, you know, so it was just completely escalated this little situation, you know, in a way that, you know, hopefully in most places around the world, you know, like that, that wouldn't happen. And I think that, that was what struck me so much. And so I, I guess I'm, you know, I don't know, this is probably again, one that didn't happen to her directly, No. but, but I wonder, you know, what, if that's based on some semblance of, of reality, like, is it, are, do people really need to walk on eggshells like that to that extent well i think it's good comes down to um one person's uh word word is more valuable than the others and i guess you know you might think like i don't know if this is what happens but it could also i mean i guess it happens in america all the time if you're black and you're just you know minding your own business and a white woman decides to call the police and say I'm being, I feel intimidated. This person could end up dead. And, you know, yeah. it just depends who has a more influence in the society that you live in. And, you know, it's usually 
if not the minority, but the person who has, you know, the least amount of rights and whose death isn't going to be a big deal, you know? Yeah. No, I think I think that you you hit it exactly there. I think that 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 is it. I mean, I think I think that's a big fear that a lot of uh, minorities, people of color, have in the United States is that you know if something escalates, even if they're not the ones that did the escalating, they're the yeah. ones that could face the punishment, and that that is what this story is also. And I think driving. in other societies, it might be if you have more money, like in other parts of the Arab world, you know, you can call someone a terrorist and they would be, they would investigate it because, you know, the police have bigger powers to arrest because, mm -hmm. you know, if you say someone is a terrorist, well, there's a good chance they might be a terrorist if another person says they are, you know, it's really hard to, you need to have a police that is, you know, reasonable and fair and yeah. treats everyone equally and if that's not the case well then we can't guarantee what happens yeah yeah fair that's which is very difficult yeah. uh in a lot of places and i think again uh you know and this is there were actually many this is now making me think that actually several other stories kind of played along this theme to some extent yeah <laughs> Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think it was White Lilies where um, there's somebody buying flowers to go see his mother. And um, I think by the end of the story, he's killed in a drone attack or no. Yeah, there was another person who was actually yeah. the person selling it, who sold him the flowers years before. And initially, I mean, I thought this story was going in a completely different direction. Yeah. I thought these two men would eventually become lovers. And that's how I saw it. And then as I read, I said, oh, of course, that's not it. But, you know, you think in another world, this could have been the case. You know, it, it might have been if we were talking about another country or, you know, another time. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, it, it went into, you know, a very, yeah, for the a book, very, a very typical place. dark place. Yeah. And it was just, yeah. So, so eventually, this this person, one one of the people is is told to launch a drone attack against someone else. And you know, I, I think it's it's again similar to Black Grapes. There's that power imbalance there, and um, it's almost like this. It, it, what really struck me about this one was sort of the the conditioning that must have happened to the person operating right. the drone where they just got an order, they got a signal. I think he sort of like thought about it for just a split second about, well, is that the right thing to do? Or what should, you know, wait a minute, he's, there's some kids around. And then they were like, nope, just go for it. And he was like, okay. And that was it, you know, and then they, and he was yeah. just in some remote room and, and, you know, killed someone. And so it, Again, and and then you could, you could even yeah, just like you were saying with Samuel and Moon, and um, and you know, so just that that power imbalance, the the violence is um, it's very intense yeah. here, and and I think it, and it is a violent culture, but this is it, you know, yeah. this is like it's a cycle of violence that just never ends. And, um, you know, if you if you live in a violent society and, you know, I don't think everyone accepts that. I don't think everyone wants to live in this kind of society. But, you know, you're conditioned to believe that it's the only way out and it's the only way for you to live safely. 
and and you know i guess most of us just can't understand what that's like well i think most of us are lucky enough to not have exactly. to figure that out exactly i mean i, I feel exactly. very lucky yeah after reading these stories um so for for example uh just to connect with more of the maybe more of the guys mm. Um, so we have pen and notebook and this story, this story was kind of mind blowing. I mean, it, it's, it's literally about three kids whose job is just to go and get rocks and then bring them back and sell them to someone for just a little bit of money to keep their family going because their father can't work and then kind of go and do it again every day. Like that's literally what they do. And the story is you see their efforts to find kind of happiness throughout when one of the kids sees a little finds a little play truck to have and um which ends up helping them later when a police officer pulls them over and he lets them off because he sees the truck and all this stuff so it, to me this was just like wow like these kids have what most people would just see as just nothing going for them and having a just mm. a, you know not not a great situation but you know they they seem to fight on you know like they they make do with what they have they and i think really the to me at least the title of the the book pen or title of the story pen and notebook you know they they end with that like keep saving the money that that we're making here to get that pen and notebook and and i guess it made me think that maybe um maybe it was about being a writer i don't know but what did you take away from that story about how we can stay strong and, and I guess think about our futures. Yeah, I think with a uh, pen and notebook, I think it was really difficult, um, you know, to read about these children who really don't have anything and, you know, they're really mm -hmm. young and, and they still have to work after school and the oldest couldn't finish school because he had to leave school to work and provide for his family. Um, and that's a really tough choice you know because it's where yeah. where do you go from there and what does your future look like and I think with writing so much of writing is you know it's hope and I think some people when they write they think they write stories at the worst times of their life and I think it's a way to kind of escape and with pen and notebook I kind of felt like that was really it you know I think it was in a way you know there there was hope but at the same time, you can see how that could lead you to a very, you know, violent life if you've got nothing to look forward to and if you've got nothing to live for and if you don't have money and if you don't have basic fundamental, you know, access to education, security, a home or a family life. I think, you know, that that could take you down a really bad road. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's definitely. more what I read into it that, you know, hopefully these children grow up to be, you know, wonderful and have a wonderful life, but you never know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to connect that now to connect these boys to then like the story of 14 June, which mm. is the girl, which is these, these other children and, and, you know, this girl especially. And so, you know, one of the things that really caught me about, this story about kind of just a family sort of sequestered in their home, watching all this violence unfold around them was that, you know, the kids had 
kind of normalized it to some extent. Like they were sort of watching it, but it didn't mm. it didn't frighten them as much as I think their their mom wanted. They didn't flinch. So it seems like they had lost their innocence to some degree. And so I guess one of the things that I was thinking about throughout this book is about children in moments of crisis and mm. moments of kind of insanity, basically. So it's, yeah, just to think about like how, how, how are children in Gaza really dealing with this on a, on a daily basis? And especially when exposed to this kind of violence, how is that affecting them? Some children survive, but you do wonder like about, the cost of living in such a place, in such a like, difficult place. And you can see why people leave and why people want to leave. And if you stay, like, how does that change mm -hmm. you? You know, if you're exposed to so much trauma, your entire life is very traumatic, then, you know, how can you live your life when you just know that at any moment things could go wrong? And, you know, it's just it's really hard to understand how you can live through something like that. And I think what we see, you know, not just in Gaza, in Syria and everywhere, you know, children are so traumatized that, you know, that trauma stays with them for years. And even when they leave and even when they, mm -hmm. you know, have kind of safe lives and secure lives in other places, I think they just, you just never get over that kind of, that kind of life. Which is very depressing, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's hopefully. I mean, you you hope that children can grow up and mm. have a future and yeah. live a life and and all that at least. Um, and and I think that kind of that notion of okay, now I'm an adult. What happened to me in the past um, was was talked a little bit about in, in the long braid, which is kind of this journalist kind of thinking about her past and and imagining what it was like for her um and she when she was younger she really liked to sing and dance and um really that just wasn't taken well by you know her her family and um mm -hmm. she kind of imagines i think to some degree what what her life could have been and to me that that is or it was kind of linked with what we were just talking about in the sense that, you know, as an adult, you often think about how your life could have gone differently and whether that was about, you know, whether your creativity could have been expressed and you could have done that mm -hmm. for a living maybe, or something more serious, like we were talking about where, how, how would, you know, how would my life have been different if I didn't grow up amongst all this violence or something like that? Like what, what, what could have been better? And so, yeah, I guess, you know, how can we, one one thing I wanted to check in on is like, how can we try and stay true to our younger selves? Like, you know, wh whatever it was that we liked about our younger selves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very tough question. I think when we're young, you know, we have so many dreams and we all want to be astronauts before, you know, you realize that you have to do like science and math and physics and all these things that, you <laughs> yeah, know. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work and, you know, I think when things aren't available to you as an option, like for this girl who wanted to be a singer and who, you know, wanted to just go and sing and dance and, you know, be joyful. She just wasn't allowed to do that because, you know, her teacher thinks a woman's voice shouldn't be heard. <laughs> you know, like women should not yeah. be singing and people should be serious. And I think it's especially if you're brought up somewhere like Gaza, you're not allowed to just be a normal person. 
you have to have um you know ideals and want to fight and but what if you don't want to do that what if you just want to be a singer and not have to you know yeah be a journalist and write about things that aren't related to violence and growing up you know with all these other things going on you're just not allowed to be normal and uh, you know you have this double <laughs> kind of responsibility and guilt because you just have so much on your shoulders to to live up to and uh yeah and also i think it's very interesting because with the long braid and there's another story um the mirror with the yeah mm -hmm. and that's kind of the same thing like when you look in the mirror and the, you have this aunt who's sitting with her little niece and they're both, you know, looking at the mirror and they see completely different things because the little girl is just playing with the light and looking at herself and you can tell she likes herself when she looks in the mirror, you know, and to her, it's not so loaded, you know, she looks in the mirror, she sees herself, she sees who she wants to be but when the aunt looks in the mirror it's just she looks she wonders about what her life could have been like if this horrible you know assault hadn't mm. happened to her when she was a child and you know would she have been a different person a happier person um you know the shame i think that you feel when you look in the mirror as an adult and as a child they're just different experiences and you just have to wonder what happens in someone's life where you get to that point you know is it ever smooth yeah. <laughs> childhood yeah so you know adulthood how, yeah. how do we get there right yeah M mirrors are very uh tricky mm. things that's for sure <laughs> yeah i mean may maybe just uh, to to wrap up all the stories i mean uh, I, I also wanted to check in on breastfeeding because yeah. i thought that story was just super super interesting i mean it's it's sort of just like uh it's it's a it's a story about marriage and weddings and children and but it's it's layered with all these elements of tradition in different ways about you know the tradition of what the woman should be doing and what the man should be doing and and uh, who who should be you know spending time with whom and how like yeah. it, I don't know it may, maybe tradition slash cultural norms is the right bigger bucket to put it in but. It, it seems so interesting to me that to think about all those different layers, you know, like what was your sense of how they all interacted and, and why they were all so important? Well, I think with story like breastfeeding, and I think most people, you know, unless you grew up in Arab culture, don't know that, you know, if a woman breastfeeds someone else's baby and then that baby can't marry her own children, you know, so it's a very interesting thing. Mm -hmm. if, the same woman breastfeeds two children and you know they're completely unrelated they wouldn't be technically yeah. allowed to get married and i mean it's you know i don't know why but it's i guess islamic culture maybe we don't know if it's islamic or it's arab or where exactly it comes from so you know for mm -hmm. someone to discover that the person they married had been breastfed by her mother then that marriage is you know void and any children that resulted from that marriage, it, well, it doesn't matter. The husband can, can leave his wife. You know, a woman can leave her husband because then it's like discovering you're related, maybe closely related, I don't know. But I think also made me think about, mm. the, you know, the whole idea about tradition and culture and how it, you know, disproportionately affects women. It's always about women. 
It's always about women's yeah. bodies, and that's what tradition, you know, is. Um, and you know, men tradition never seems to apply to men. You know, it's always the woman, and hmm. it's. Um, and I think it's also the story. You know, this woman was not in a happy marriage, and then she encourages her daughter to go into another marriage that probably isn't going to be happy either. And you know, it's just like the things we expose our, ourselves to and then our children to. Because you assume that yeah. at some point this mother would think twice about letting her daughter marry someone she doesn't know or she doesn't love. But like, no, she doesn't think like that. She just says, oh, well, you should be married because, you know, that's the tradition and a woman should listen to what her husband says even if she's been wronged. And, you know, it's it kind of puts things in perspective and you know you just think about how unfair it all is <laughs> yeah yeah it really is i mean i think that's this is the whole woman's rights movement right is that mm -hmm. they're pushing back against these traditions that have been structured yeah. to be unfair to them and so they're trying to get gains and be allowed to be free and you know, do things like vote, which was very yeah. difficult. You know, there was a lot of a huge fight to allow women to vote um, again because of just like what you said that you know the tradition was. And, yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, then written into the law. Yeah, it's and you know, when you think about it, it really doesn't seem to affect men. They always say it's the tradition, it's the tradition, and then other women say it's our tradition. But then, you know, how does it affect men? I I I don't know. <laughs> Well, they were the writers of the yes, traditions exactly. and they wrote it to benefit them, <laughs> of right? Of course, this is always the their advantage. So it was, it was kind of really um, sad, the story, because I thought, oh, God, yeah. you know, like this is just terrible, <laughs> this poor woman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, I mean, that's, and that's clearly what, you know, is, you're, she was trying to get yeah. us to think about is like, is, is that this is a clear case of all this going very yeah. wrong, you know, and... And I think, you know, that's, it's interesting to think about, but that, that's a lot of what this book is. It's, you know, it's, and I think probably that's what a lot of drama obviously is, right? It's not going to show you all the good stuff and everything going fine. Like it wants to get across when things go wrong right. and how they go wrong and why they go wrong. And I think this is a lot of what this book does very well is it shows you how, in Gaza, all the things that you think are easy in your life become very difficult and go wrong very easily. And and that that's one of the big mm. takeaways I had was that, you know, across, you know, all, all these different stories, every little thing, everyone's working so hard and trying to get, you know, as, as scraped by and, you know, working within the boundaries of their religion, their culture, their their geographical location, uh, and and it's just uh, like a constant battle of some sort. You know, even if it's not a physical yeah. fight, there's a mental battle being Yeah, made. I mean, I think the idea that the enemy is not always someone on the outside. You know, the enemy is also you and your mm. immediate family and your immediate culture and the traditions that you grew up with. You know, it's not just, it's not as simple as, you know, the police are the enemy or, you know politicians are the enemy and say no it's everyone <laughs> it can it can it can yeah. be anyone the, you know it's not about the political yeah. situation you know people have their own issues to kind of wrap wrap things up i i was just a little curious 
if, you know, across all of these stories, uh, if any of them particularly resonated with you, if you really connected with any of them for any reason? Um, I think Summerland Moon, because I, I think, you hmm. know, it's just about a couple driving and, um, you know, they're just, I think, university students. And it just it feels like a very normal experience that you would have. You know, you go to the beach and you, you know, you're with your boyfriend or your partner and you're on the beach and you're just having a nice time. And then that person suddenly changes to become, you know, completely religious mm. or starts judging you for how you dress um, based on, you know, their family, what they think based on their friends and how that person can become, you know, radicalized. And okay, maybe I don't have personal experience with that story, but I, I can see how it happens. And, you know, I think we've all seen it happen with all the, you know, the stories of people committing terrorist acts and, you know, their friends say, oh, but they were so normal or they were completely not religious. But then all mm. of a sudden they became very religious. They stopped doing all these things and they started saying, you know, terrible things about other people. And then eventually they, you know, kill someone <laughs> or and I think I, for yeah. that, I was like, I was really, it was just shocking how they can go from being, you know, having a normal existence, a normal life and to becoming someone completely different because, you know, they, they feel wronged. So we've covered a lot yes. today <laughs> across the whole book and, and on all of this. Is there, is there anything else that you really felt like was important to, to communicate about, you know, your work as a translator, about the contents of the book or, or anything else you sort of hoped people would get out of this? Well, I mean, I think I, I, I guess I hope that people would read it and, and, you know, yeah. feel like it resonates with them because, it, you know, it's not about a specific place or it's not about women's issues specifically, or it's about not about a specific issue, but they're, you know, it's just about a portrait of everyday life, you know, and how, Yes, people are different, but we all have the same fundamental feelings and, you know, we all have the same human experience. And I think this book kind of does make you feel that way. You're right. We, we are essentially exactly the same. Yes. All of us, <laughs> with just very minor. With very minor, minor tweaks. <laughs> yeah, very minor tweaks. Um, yeah, totally. I, I hear you. And I, and I think that is, like you said, a great reason for people to, to read the, the stories. Um, okay, so that was a very that was a lot of very intense. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> stuff there. So let's let's end with it. No, no, no. That's 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 as it should be. That's what this book is. Um, but let's end with a thunder round, like I mm -hmm. like to do, which we'll just do some a little bit lighter, getting to know you questions, and then we can call the day. Okay. 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 So first off, what what is your favorite food or drink? Hmm. I'd like anything with eggplant. Eggplant dip, baked, fried. Oh. <laughs> And yeah, okay. I really like eggplant. <laughs> it's my Egyptian upbringing, I think. We just have it for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, we do have it for breakfast as a side. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good with garlic and chili. <laughs> yeah, so are most things. Yes, um, <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah. Where is your favorite place you've ever been? I think my favorite place um, is Alexandria in Egypt. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I have to because I'm from Cairo. I mean, I'm from Egypt, so I have to stay somewhere in Egypt. But no, I used to spend the summer there. I used to spend two to three months every summer in Alexandria, you know, on the beach with friends and everyone would go from Cairo and, you know, you'd see everyone in a little tiny place and the food's amazing. The city is beautiful and, um, you know, the buildings. It's like really one of the few places in Egypt that still feels, you know, like it hasn't been built up. All right, last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? It's really tricky. I mean, there's so many things to change in the world. I know. But I think obviously, you know, inequality and making sure everyone has the same basic access to, you know, an education and uh, not to be too... I don't know. I don't want to say tax the rich more, <laughs> but you know, I think we should all have decent access to education, maternity leave, paternity leave. I think it's one of those yeah. things that is really, you know, it's shocking. I think it's shocking how little we have in terms of um, leave for parents. On that note, thanks so much, Perween. Uh, the book is The Sea Cloak. Translated by Perween Richards, author Nehru's Karmut. Um, and if you couldn't figure out, it is so interesting and fascinating and uh, will, will really make you think for a while. So thanks again for joining. Pauline. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. 